0: Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman.
1: As wildfires continue to rage in California, farm and range losses are mounting. We have an early look at some of the damage. The state is claiming victory again against the Medfly, but this time in Solano County. The Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. It's not just about what's below the soil. There are serious land use decisions that are going to have to be made, especially in the Central Valley. We have an in-depth report. All that crop reports and multiple awards for California's cheesemakers. It's coming up on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. <music> Last week we told you about the several wildfires in California, the Car Fire, the Mendocino Complex and the Ferguson Fire. Unfortunately, a week later, those fires are still burning. And they've increased. The car Fire near Redding. Last week, 125,000 acres burned. This week, 173,000 acres. The Mendocino Complex, the river and ranch fires around Clear Lake, has grown as well. 110,000 acres were burned last week. The most current figure at press time, 300,000 acres. And the Ferguson Fire, which has been burning since mid-July near Yosemite. Last week, 68,000 acres burned. Now, 91,000 acres. Firefighters are getting a handle on all three blazes, but it's going to be a while. Many estimates say it won't be until September 1st, until the fires are fully contained. And farmers and ranchers are beginning to assess the impact of the damage. Most of the burning is taking place in Lake County, where wine grapes and pears are the prime crops. The California Farm Bureau Federation's Ag Alert newspaper talked to growers and ranchers in the Lake County area recently, and many of them are still hopeful for the best. Keith Brandt, he works for Bella Vista Farming Company of Kelseyville and serves as president of the Lake County Farm Bureau, told the California Farm Bureau that he knows of vineyard damage in the Upper Lake area.
2: From an agricultural
1: standpoint, um, there has been some damage in areas where uh, the fire has burned up up against ag areas. We're aware of one, at least one vineyard that has had some damage, and uh, there are probably some pear grove uh, pear orchards, over in the Scotts Valley area that is, have sustained some damage. But uh, too early to tell. The uh, there are still active. Uh, uh suppression operations going on in those areas so we have not been able to get in to have a look we're very close to Verasion, and the uh the longer the smoke sits on the uh on the grapes themselves the greater chance or probability of damage Verasion or wine grape ripening is just beginning in lake county harvest is supposed to begin in early september but opinions are differing as to whether those ripening grapes are more susceptible to smoke damage. You may remember that worry during last year's October blazes in Napa, Sonoma counties. Fortunately, most of the wine grapes by the time of that fire had already been picked, and the remaining bunches that had not been picked were somewhat resistant to smoke. Many growers attribute that to the fact that the older grape had thicker skins. But now, the grapes are vulnerable. Meanwhile, pear growers have their concerns. It was an eventful week for Tony Scully. She and her crew at Scully Packing Company south of Lakeport packs pears from Lake County and other regions, and she's very thankful for the great work that Cal Fire did.
3: We were just kind of coming down off at the peak of our Sacramento River run here. And all of a sudden, our crew had to leave in a panic because uh, they all had to find places to stay. And uh, it's pretty worrisome when, they, when you know that there's a fire raging near. Fortunately, we've got our feet under us again. It was truly a white-knuckle time because nobody knew how long this was going to last. Or where the fire was going to end up, and I must say Cal Fire saved all of our communities, and uh, it's been amazing what they've been able to accomplish.
1: That Mendocino complex blaze, by the way, the largest in the history of California.
2: Wildfire threats continue to grow in the Pacific Coast states through August, the traditional peak of the fire season in that region, but also growing, according to USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey, is drought.
1: Where some of these big fires are going in northern California and the northwest, we have seen some significant deterioration in the overall drought situation over the last month.
2: Rippy notes for specific states.
1: Perhaps most dramatic is Oregon, where we now see D2 rapidly spreading across the state. And the severe drought there, D2, 18% of the state on July 3rd, now 56% of the state. We saw a similar increase in the moderate drought coverage in Washington state, 12% D1 a month ago, now 30%. So that's really a hot spot for potential and future wildfire activity, in part fueled by the drought.
2: And going into mid-August, drought and wildfire conditions are expected to slowly deteriorate in both California and parts of the Northwest. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
1: The California Department of Food and Agriculture, along with the USDA and the Solano County Ag Commissioner's Office, have eradicated a Mediterranean fruit fly infestation centered in and around the city of Fairfield, and that ends a 108-square-mile quarantine that began back on September 25th of 2017. A total of 10 flies were detected. CDFA used the release of sterile male med flies at a minimum rate of 500,000 flies per square mile per week as the mainstay of its eradication measures for this pest. Additionally, properties within 200 meters of detection sites were treated. The treatment, an organic formulation of spinosad, which originates from naturally occurring bacteria in soil that eliminates any mated females and reduces the density of the population. To further reduce the population of med flies, properties within 100 meters of breeding populations were subject to host fruit removal that eliminates the eggs and the larvae. During this incident, over 2,000 pounds of fruit were removed from 58 properties. It began
4: to be noticeable in 2006, but really became a front page national issue in 2008.
3: The sudden inexplicable disappearance of millions of honeybees.
5: Collapsing colonies and staggering bee losses
3: 50% or more. And if you want the honey, the mm-mm honey, you got to take it
4: and still, 10 years later? There's quite a bit of buzz about bees going on right now. Uh, that's Tony Dorn with the Agriculture Department Statistics Service, and this past week's USDA report on honeybee colony numbers may add to that buzz. A few years ago, when the bee losses and so-called colony collapse disorder became serious, the Ag Department started a survey of beekeepers to try to get a better handle on how bad the losses really were. We have the latest edition of that, and if you just look at the January 1st, 2018 number of bee colonies in operations with the five or more colonies, and compare it to January 1, 2017 looks like there's no problem with colony losses at all. The number of colonies were down 0.4 percent from year to year. Just four-tenths of one percent, but Tony says that sort of hides the fact that beekeepers are continuing to have major colony losses all through the year. The Ag Department tracks these in quarters, three-month periods. Here's an example, January through March 2017.
6: The number of colonies lost were 398,650, which is of the total
4: colonies. Same quarter this year, more losses, topping last year by over 26,000, a 16% loss. And Dorn says producers have been losing each quarter from 10 to 16% of their colonies. And so over a year's time...
3: The losses unfortunately are remaining high 40 to 50% over the entire year.
4: And that's Jay Evans. He's research leader at the Agriculture Department's Bee Research Lab in Beltsville, Maryland. So you have to ask how can bee colony numbers January 1, 2018 be only 4 tenths of 1% lower than January 2017. Evan says the answer is that colonies can be split in half.
3: And set up into two smaller colonies when the forage is right, when the food is available. So beekeepers are very good at that. They can split their colonies, but of course you get two weaker colonies when you do that. And you might have to actually buy food in terms of pollen supplements to build them back up again. So there's no, like, magic doubling of the colonies, but it is possible with management to split them in half and build up both halves, and that's exactly what they're doing to keep the numbers the same. So it's just extra labor on the part of the beekeeper to split those colonies and then to bring up both halves of the new colony.
4: But he says that's not a sustainable thing to keep doing. Meanwhile, Tony Dorn says beekeepers are reporting more symptoms of colony collapse disorder. During the January through March quarter they reported symptoms this year in almost 78,000 colonies.
6: That was up 15 percent from the previous year. So. Those reports of those symptoms are
3: are increasing.
4: And so Jay Evans with the USDA's Bee Lab in Maryland told us...
3: We haven't really declared victory on whatever's been happening to honeybees.
4: But they're making progress and giving beekeepers advice to help them. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture.
1: Here's this week's California Crop Report. Rice continues to progress well in the Sacramento Valley. Corn is being harvested for silage. Alfalfa is being cut, dried, and baled down in Tulare County. Sunflowers in Sutter County continue to be defoliated. Grape vineyards are being irrigated. Table grape harvest is ongoing. Mechanical and manual pruning and thinning of grapes is ongoing as well. Peaches, nectarines, apricots, figs, table grapes, pears, and plums are being harvested. Stone fruit orchards are being sprayed, irrigated, and fertilized. Summer pruning and topping of harvested stone fruit orchards is ongoing. A few stone fruit growers reported increased damage and fruit drop from the summer's extreme weather. Some old orchards were torn out for replacement with new trees. Valencia oranges are being harvested. Citrus packers were color sorting as citrus greening is more prevalent due to the higher temperatures. Valencia harvest is wrapping up due to the high temperatures and lack of harvestable fruit. Almond, walnut, and pistachio orchard irrigation continues. Sunburn protection was applied to some walnut groves. Almond hull split was underway. Almond groves are being treated with pesticides and fungicides. Romaine and broccoli are being harvested in Monterey. Processing tomatoes were harvested in the Sacramento Valley. Peppers, squash, eggplant, cucumbers, and tomatoes were being harvested in Tulare County. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture quality deterioration continues with the week's hot, dry, windy conditions. Lower elevation range and non-irrigated pastures were rated to be poor to fair. Cattle were provided supplemental feed to compensate for the declining nutritional value of the rangeland forage. Some cattle were moved to higher elevation ranges. Wildfires continued and burned many acres of rangeland. Sheep are grazing on retired cropland. Bees were active in the melon
7: fields.
1: (laughs) Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. (laughs) The Capitol Press is reporting that President Trump is working to replace NAFTA with bilateral agreements with Canada and Mexico. That according to the chairman of the House Ag Committee, who told ag leaders that this past week. Representative Michael Conaway of Texas said he didn't have further details, but he got the sense that was the direction Trump was moving with both countries during a recent meeting on trade with the president. Conaway told the Capitol Press that President Trump prefers bilateral agreements to NAFTA as well as to the Trans-Pacific Partnership.
4: We now have complete ag trade numbers for the first nine months of this fiscal year. June exports, $11.8 billion down from May.
5: But that actually is the highest duty total
8: that. the U.S. has had on record.
4: And USDA trade economist Bryce Cook says May was also the biggest May export month ever. And so for the fiscal year up through June, the U.S. has sold $110.9 billion worth of ag products to other countries.
8: About $1.8 billion above 2017, or about a 2% increase.
4: So far, high-value product export sales are the ones climbing.
8: Red meat products are up 10%. So are poultry products. Dairy products are up 5% in value terms
4: over the previous year. Bulk products as a whole down from a year ago. In value terms, soybeans down 10%, corn 3 wheat 1% down, but cotton sales up 7%. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington.
1: The peach harvest across the country is in full swing, and California's farmers say they're seeing more competition in the marketplace this year. The California Farm Bureau Federation reports that's because peach orchards in Georgia and South Carolina have recovered after frost reduced their harvest a year ago. Cold weather this year in the Central Valley took a toll on some early peach varieties, but growers say harvests of mid-season peaches have returned to typical levels. By the way, California leads the nation in peach production. Two California organizations, as well as one national organization, have been selected to receive a combined $1.3 million through the USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service's nationally awarded Conservation Innovation Grants. All three projects support soil health innovation. Among the grant winners, the Napa County Resource Conservation District will promote soil health assessments and field trial monitoring to support soil health management systems in California's North Coast vineyards. The University of California regions will work with growers to incorporate highly productive organic no-till vegetable cropping systems throughout California. And the American Farmland Trust will work with farmers in California, as well as four other states, to accelerate soil health adoption by quantifying economic and environmental outcomes, as well as overcoming barriers on rented land.
2: Soil health grazing lands, and organic agriculture systems. Those are the priority areas for this year's USDA Conservation Innovation Grants, a natural resources conservation service program that has been around since the 2002
8: Farm Bill. Authorized as a part of the larger Environmental Quality Incentives Program. What CIG is really intended to do is explore new and innovative approaches to private lands conservation, kind of looking at the next generation of ways to get conservation on the ground and adopted at a broader scale.
2: Kari Cohen of NRCS says this cost share grant program is awarded to public and private partners on two levels.
8: First is the national level where we have a single, usually national, competition. And these grants can be up to $2 million. And then at the smaller scale, we offer state competitions. Each year, NRCS state offices can choose to run their own CIG competition. And these are a much smaller scale. The maximum size of those grants are $75,000. And each year, between 15 and 25 states take advantage of that opportunity.
2: So in regards to the Conservation Innovation Grant Program for 2018...
8: What we announced were 22 awards across those three topic areas for just over $10 million. Cohen provides
2: an example from each priority area. So for instance, under grazing lands.
8: We gave a grant to the University of Idaho, which is developing a grazing forage assessment tool that ranchers in our western states can use. And it's a really interesting idea of kind of integrating satellite imagery with on the ground forage assessment into the single tool that'll kind of be a next generation tool that ranchers can really have at their fingertips using a smartphone or something like that.
2: Meanwhile, the University of Wisconsin will use its CIG to look at a prevalent challenge to organic ag systems, which is.
8: Increasing adoption of no-till agriculture. Tillage is often needed to control weeds because herbicides aren't really able to be used so much in organic systems. So the University of Wisconsin project is looking at exploring ways to increase the adoption of no-till in organic systems.
2: Numerous soil health projects were also awarded conservation innovation grants.
8: One example is in northern latitudes up in Minnesota, for example, or in the Dakotas. Adoption of soil health management systems tends to be a little bit lower. There's unique challenges in those latitudes of getting cover crops seeded and growing before winter sets in. So we have a project with the University of Minnesota where they're going to be looking at potential ways to increase cover crop adoption and ways that getting cover crops seeded earlier so that they'll be able to start growing before winter sets in.
2: I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
7: The Precision Agriculture Connectivity Act is included in both the House and Senate versions of the Farm Bill and was passed as a standalone bill by the House of Representatives last week. The legislation would lead to better connectivity in the field for precision agriculture uses, according to American Farm Bureau Federation Congressional Relations Director R.J. Carney.
5: The Precision Ag Connectivity Act... Will direct the Federal Communications Commission, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, to establish a task force of public and private sector members for meeting the technology needs of precision agriculture.
7: The task force will be responsible for developing specific steps federal agencies can take to address gaps in coverage with a goal of achieving 95 percent coverage of crop and ranch lands by 2025. This will allow more farmers to use precision agriculture technology and be more efficient, economical, and environmentally friendly.
5: Many of the latest yield maximizing farming techniques, they do require broadband connections, specifically for data collection and analysis, both performed at the farm level, but also at remote data centers. So this Precision Ag Connectivity Act is critical for farmers and ranchers who want to utilize precision ag technology as a tool in their toolbox.
7: Carney says moving the bill across the finish line is becoming more certain.
5: Farm Bureau is extremely optimistic that the Precision Agricultural Connectivity Act will be signed into law. Rural broadband, it's a critical pathway for global markets for agriculture and other industries and farmers and ranchers, they rely on broadband as another vital tool in the infrastructure to deliver food, fiber,
7: and energy across the country.
1: Michael Clements, Washington. Take that, Wisconsin. California's cheesemakers won a total of 53 awards recently at the American Cheese Society's annual cheese competition in Pittsburgh. Over 259 processors representing the United States, Canada, Mexico, Brazil, and Colombia were in the competition, but California took home 32 big prizes six first place 11 second place and 15 third place awards in this year's judging in total 15 cows milk cheese and dairy companies won awards for products made with 100 percent california milk from the state's more than 1300 dairy farm families california is the second largest cheese producing state in the nation california is responsible for more than 2.5 billion pounds of cheese in 2017 Among the Northern California winners at the cheese competition was the Sierra Nevada Cheese Company in Willows, the Marquez Brothers of San Jose, Caroon Dairies of Turlock, the Point Reyes Farmstead Cheese Company, Fiscalini Cheese Company in Modesto, the Marin French Cheese Company in Petaloma, the Rizzo Lopez Foods of Modesto, and the Oakdale Cheese and Specialties in Oakdale. Well, how's that Sustainable Groundwater Management Act coming along? It was signed in September 2014. It requires groundwater basins under groundwater sustainability plans to monitor groundwater levels, groundwater quality, subsidence, and changes in groundwater-related surface water flows and quality. It also requires consistent data collection and sharing between water agencies managing each groundwater basin. And the thing about the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act It's moving very slowly. It may be about 20 years before it's fully implemented. And you may say, well, why is that? Aren't these aquifers shrinking? Don't we need more controls now? We're talking with Matt Weiser, and Matt works with Water Deeply and wrote a very interesting article about how California's groundwater law means big changes above ground too. And maybe it's a good thing it's moving rather slowly. And Matt, uh, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, uh, first of all, if it does come to pass in in its full glory, it, it could mean the following of thousands of acres of California farmland because they can't replenish the aquifer.
6: Right. And that was the focus of... Um My latest story on on the law, it's an aspect of the law that hasn't been covered very much, but it could be just as significant as the effects on groundwater. It's been estimated that because there's a need to reduce use of groundwater, it it could cause a great deal of fallowing of farmland, perhaps as much as 600,000 acres of farmland in the San Joaquin Valley alone could be fallowed. When
1: the law is fully implemented, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, its whole point is basically to make the outgo equal to the income. In other words, if you take out so many gallons of water from an aquifer, you've got to put in so many gallons of water. And that may not be possible, even though a lot of people are coming up with some very ingenious ideas to do that. But the net result could be some farmland that may lie fallow. But as you point out in the article, that really isn't in the best interests of the local governments, is it? They're going to lose some income.
6: Right. They collect property taxes uh, from farmland. If it sits fallow, their property tax collections will cease or become reduced. So some local government governments are starting to look at this and say, well, we need to prepare for this and figure out what to do with solid farmland once it happens. And one of the local governments that's kind of leading the way on this is Kern County in the far southern end of the San Joaquin Valley. They happen to be preparing a new general plan, which is the document that guides all the uh, land use in the county. And for the first time they're they're including a a water element it's called in the general plan that will examine um, water use in the county and how it should be used. They're also looking at strategic places to reuse fallowed farmland. For instance, one of the big concerns is groundwater recharge. You know, in addition to using less groundwater, you actually have to figure out how to build it back up. So some areas are better for recharge than others. And if those are areas that end up being fallowed, you want to protect them for recharge purposes and maybe not allow heavy development in those places.
1: The unfortunate part is not all land is really suitable for recharging. They've done several studies uh, led by UC Davis and, and fortunately where the groundwater is most threatened is the southern San Joaquin Valley and fortunately that land is most amenable to recharging the aquifers. It just has to be perkable land and it has to be somewhat flat. So that means that expanding Communities like the communities in Kern County that are trying to increase housing may not be able to get built if that land is going to be used for recharging aquifers.
6: Right, and um, one of the sources made the point in, in my article that that this is a case where local government, farmers, and groundwater officials need to start talking to each other to start planning how this farmland is going to be used long term and where it should be protected and where the recharge areas should be.
1: The good news is the recharging plan is actually... workable with many crops. I know UC Davis has tested flooding fields in the wintertime of uh, grapes, alfalfa and almonds, and they've had pretty good success uh, without damaging those permanent crops. But recharging is probably only about, what, 25 percent of the answer as far as refilling those aquifers based on what they're taking out already.
6: Yeah, and though, though you can flood some crops to recharge groundwater, that generally involves pretty shallow flooding in other locations it might be preferable to to flood the land a lot deeper than crops can tolerate and for longer than they can tolerate. The issue is where do you need to protect the land for recharge? Where can crops be grown alongside recharge?
1: What are some of the ideas for repurposing that fallowed farmland other than as a recharge area for aquifers?
6: one of the ideas that's being talked about a lot is solar energy if you have followed farmland it could be a good place to put solar panels and a whole lot of solar panels Um, this has started to occur in some places in the central valley there could be room for a lot more of it if you're not farming that land Uh, and as we all know california has very ambitious goals to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and that's going to require more green energy sources So those two goals could intersect.
1: I know that one of the thoughts uh, of people in the San Joaquin Valley is uh, redirecting storm runoff, that that might be enough water to help uh, recharge the aquifers. But how do you get storm runoff from the cities of the valley to those rechargeable areas?
6: Yeah, that is one of the problems. Um, It's been said that most of the uh, available stormwater flow occurs in the north part of the San Joaquin Valley and as you pointed out most of the good recharge lands are in the south. So how do you connect the two You may need some new infrastructure, such as canals. Um, There are a lot of canals in the San Joaquin Valley already, but there might be locations where they could be strategically connected so that you can move the floodwater where you need, need it for recharge. So that's the kind of thing that's going to need to be looked at, and probably some investment needs to happen in that area.
1: One person you talked to for that article in Water Deeply basically said, This isn't a groundwater issue, it's a land use issue.
6: Right, and that's a pretty surprising comment, but it tells you how significant uh, changes in land use could be. Uh, in, In addition to just fallowing of land, you could have some big changes in the kinds of things that people grow. You might see... Thirstier crops such as cotton and alfalfa become decreased quite a bit in the valley in favor of things that use less water and maybe produce a higher financial yield for the farmer. So you may see more fallowed land in the future. You, You may see a different mix of crops and you may even see communities growing onto some of this fallowed farmland. Uh, in some cases, that might be the right thing to do. In other cases, it, it could be a problem if, if that growth occurs on good recharge land. You could also see a lot of this fallowed land become part of existing national wildlife refuge areas in the valley, which uh, there's, there's a number of them, and many of them don't have the water they need already. Some of them, there are folks who would like to see them become bigger. So those could grow. You could even see new refuge
1: areas as a result of this following. Until recently, there was no requirement to report agricultural water consumption. Well, that changed back in 2007 when a new state law required irrigation districts to file annual reports on water delivered to their farm customers, a law that went into effect in 2012. Well, it's not twenty twelve anymore. How is that water reporting system going on? According to an article in Water Deeply written by Matt Weiser, Matt points out that this is a very hit and miss enforcement of the water reporting rules. So, Matt, talk a little bit about the history of this ordinance and uh, why it was necessary.
6: Well, it's a complicated history. Um, as you pointed out, the the law was initially adopted in two thousand seven. But there were two changes in the law that came along later, two whole new legislative bills that amended the original law. So now there's this complicated mix of requirements that affect uh, the reporting of this groundwater data, and it, is, it has been confusing for water users and confusing even for the State Department of Water Resources, which is charged with enforcing it. The reason this was all done was it it was passed in the wake of not this last drought, but the one before that as a means of simply getting a handle on how much water are we using because this data was never collected before. So it was thought to be a good idea to simply begin gathering the data and see what we're dealing with.
1: This gathering of data though seems rather old fashioned. They're requiring written reports. Yet other states like Idaho that have been doing this for a while, they're doing their own measurements. They're not looking to the local irrigation districts for the report. They've got the state has the measuring devices in order to do it. Why isn't California doing that?
6: Well, you're right. It's a very different approach than some other states. Um, Idaho, as you pointed out, does the data collection itself. and, And that some have referred to that as more of a top down data collection approach, California takes a bottom-up approach where it simply asks the water users to file reports. and That hasn't gone so well. As my story pointed out, less than half of those who are required to file these reports have filed them, which is a pretty poor uh, compliance record. It was done this way, I think, because um, it was a big step for the state, which has always been had a very sort of a laissez-faire attitude towards managing groundwater. And when the law was passed, I think um, the legislature didn't want to drop the hammer too hard on on groundwater users. So, this is how they did it. And as you pointed out, there, there was no online filing required, although the latest change in the law does create a process for online filing. So that may make it easier for some people to file and perhaps we'll see better compliance.
1: And I guess it's rather confusing as well. The, the I guess the, the law has been amended so that if you are a irrigation district of a certain size, you follow one sort of regulations. If you're of a different size, you have other regulations.
6: Yeah. Initially, um, the law specified one size of acreage or acre feet in terms of the use of groundwater and who was required to comply with the law. That was later changed, but the earlier parameters were not changed. So now there's, there's actually three sets of filing requirements depending on How large you are or how much water you use. Also the um, reporting period changed. Initially it was you had to report your water use based on water year. Then it was changed to calendar year. And so now DWR has this crazy mix of data that it's trying to make sense of in order to put stuff online
1: one set of data that they don't have, but it is a set of data that a state like Idaho is collecting. It's called return flow. And this would be a big benefit to farmers. We're talking about water that once it's it's used, it basically goes back to the stream and it may be of good interest for fish and waterways. And, and yet the state uh, has no record of return flows, do they?
6: That's right. Yeah. The state does not require water users to report return flows, which um, is problematic because unless you're reporting return flows, it it may be that it it looks like you're using a lot more groundwater or, or any kind of water than you really are. Because the return flow is is water that isn't consumed by your crops. It goes downhill to the next farmer or into, back into the creek or river from which you took it. It also creates a water management problem. For instance, during, during the last drought in California, it was difficult to manage, uh, curtailments, you know, telling people they can't extract water because of the drought. This was made difficult because no one knew about return flows, so there, there may have actually been more water in some creeks and rivers than people thought because the amount of return flow wasn't known, and it still won't be known because no one's required to report that. Idaho, as you pointed out, does account for return flows, and as a result, they get a fuller picture of how much water they're using and how much they're not using.
1: And it certainly would be of a benefit to the farmers, uh, knowing that return flows are augmenting the stream flow, and it, it could help farmers in the future of uh, avoiding the pain of water diversion curtailments during drought.
6: Yeah, it could. And, and I suspect a lot of farmers uh, have a good sense of their return flows and what what percentage it is of the total water that they divert for irrigation. But they're probably not measuring it because they're not required to the if they were required to measure it, you know, it could be very useful data, not just for the farmer, but for state officials who are trying to deal with things like droughts.
1: Is the state looking to update these rules and regulations and methodologies? Not that I'm aware of.
6: Right now, DWR is is um, continuing to wrestle with making the, the information that it has available to people. Um, it was just a couple months ago that they finally put some of it online so that everybody could look at it. It is publicly available. Um, They created this crude website that that puts up some of the data that they have, but not all the data that they've collected since the law went into effect because of this change in reporting requirements. They're still sorting through and quality checking a lot of the data, so, so much of it isn't available yet. In my article, they pointed out that the situation with their data collection and posting of it is not ideal, and they're hoping for better compliance in the future. But one of the problems with all these laws is that there is no penalty. DWR was not empowered to assess any kind of penalty on people who don't report this data, so they don't have much of an ability to compel people to comply. The one exception is that a certain category of water users over a certain size is not eligible for state grants if they don't report the data. So they have this little nudge that they can apply to people who, if they want a grant, they better start reporting their water use. But that's it. There's no fines or penalties or anything else.
1: And I would imagine the Department of Water Resources lacks the resources to monitor every one of these.
6: Well, sure. And that's true of many areas of California law enforcement. Yeah, there there is not enough people power to get out there and look at every well and every water diversion and and verify that it's being that a recording device has been installed and that reports are being filed so yeah much of the um, non-compliance is not being investigated on the ground unfortunately
1: if it involves water and farms in california matt weiser is writing about it in water deeply a division of newsdeeply.com. Matt, always good talking with you, finding out more about uh, the morass we call the California water. Thanks for a few minutes of your time. Thanks, Fred. My pleasure. USDA provides an array of different benefits to women, infants, and children under its WIC program.
8: Actually, there's seven different WIC food packages to match our individual participants' needs, and one of those packages is a breastfeeding package.
1: Diane Kravisky
3: with USDA's Food and Nutrition Service says women can go in to discuss their needs with
1: a counselor at their local WIC clinic.
8: If there's been a change in their status, if they have stopped breastfeeding or if they have gone to partially breastfed in discussing with the The counselor at the WIC clinic they can offer her a
1: different package. At the same time, WIC does not make breastfeeding a mandatory requirement for eligibility.
8: I also want to make sure that we recognize that not all women can breastfeed and so WIC program absolutely supports these women as well by offering a wide choice of both guidance as well as infant formula to support healthy
1: development. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. You
2: perhaps have heard the term replenishment. Maybe you think it is a catchphrase in a soft drink commercial. That well-known company relates to replenishment, but perhaps not in the way that you think. The Coca-Cola
0: company understands. The connection between forest and water is huge. Many people don't know that the kind of origin of the Forest Service had to do with the production of fiber and the protection of water sources. And Ray Foote of the National Forest Foundation
2: says that is why his nonprofit organization in partnership with the U.S. Forest Service and the Coca-Cola Company are restoring America's watersheds, with the emphasis at the source of this H2O, our nation's forest.
0: That, I think, not been as apparent as it is today. It is very clearly one of the chief values that the forests provide for us, a value estimated at $3.2 billion annually. We have a figure in here, 123 million Americans get their drinking water from the forest. Foote says this partnership is an example of similar
2: public-private collaborations where resources are combined, leveraged, and expanded to get as much forest restoration work done as possible.
0: Through challenging our nonprofit and local and community partners to raise funds, to bring in volunteer hours, to use a grant from a company to go to another corporation and say, look, they've put a quarter million dollars in, can you match that? So we really, it's important to us to turn what resources we have into a much bigger impact. That is needed according to Foot, as a high percentage
2: of our nation's streams, creeks and rivers are stressed or in a substandard condition that impacts water quality. So what do some of these replenishment projects look like? One involves efforts in the Middlewind National Tallgrass Prairie in Illinois, where the impacts to water quality of decades, centuries of agricultural, military, and industrial use is being reversed.
0: One thing that was done to drain this land was the installation of field tile, like terracotta or clay drainage pipes. And it was, in essence, to remove the moisture and carry it away. That's not appropriate or healthy, so we needed to pull those tiles out, and after a period of time, they can be replanted.
2: Replanted with native grasses and plants by a group made up primarily from inner city Chicago youth volunteers, many of whom have never seen a prairie before. Meanwhile, across the continent in California...
0: In the Angeles National Forest, there's this really insidious thing called bamboo. It's hard to get rid of the stuff. This is a water-intensive, very thirsty, bad species. And it absorbs so much water, and then it evaporates, that it is seriously counterproductive, and it doesn't belong there. It's not a native species. So local contractors
2: and youth corps volunteers manually remove the bamboo and shred it. The leftover bamboo mulch used to retain soil moisture and allow native plants greater opportunity to grow and thrive in the Angelos National Forest watershed. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
0: Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.